Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Celebrate the end of your workday with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as another busy Wednesday flies by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. In filmmaking, there are public roles like the actors and directors, and there are critical behind-the-scenes roles filled by people who rarely become household names, among them screenwriters who provide dynamic material to work with and editors who, in the end, shape the film you see. My guests today are two of the most successful people in the film industry. Screenwriter David Kep and film editor Walter Murch have worked with legendary directors such as Francis Ford Coppola, Steven Spielberg, and Brian De Palma, just to name a few. Walter Murch started his career as a sound editor. He received his first Oscar nomination for his work on the 1974 classic The Conversation. He worked on Apocalypse Now, for which he won his first Oscar, and he later picked up two more Academy Awards for The English Patients, becoming the first person to win for both sound mixing and editing on the same film. But first, I'm talking to writer and director David Kep. He's written some of the biggest blockbusters in movie history, films like Jurassic Park, Indiana Jones, Spider-Man, and Mission Impossible. He's also directed several of the films he's written, including last year's You Should Have Left with Kevin Bacon and Amanda Seyfried. David Kep says he started writing because as a boy he found a typewriter in his family's basement in Pewaukee, Wisconsin. He quickly tapped into the human condition. I thought it would be great in my room to have this typewriter on a typewriter stand. And then I think I was probably 10 or 11 and I thought I should write a story because I had now I had an office product. So the next step was writing a story. So I would write stories about some kid who didn't want to go to camp, but his horrible parents made him go to camp, and then something terrible happened at camp. And uh, then in high school, I'd write stories about some teenager who was misunderstood by young women and one of the things that were a little close to the bone. I just enjoyed it. I mean, I had a lot of fun. I remember in English class in high school, I had a friend who hated writing. So I said, well, I'll write your story. So I, I wrote him a story which was sort of plagiarized from John and Mary, the Dustin Hoffman movie, which I'd seen on TV a few nights before. But his story won a prize, which really made me crazy. So that was how I started. I just, I liked that I didn't need anybody's permission. I could just go upstairs and start typing. So I'm assuming you were a movie buff as well while you're starting your writing career? Yeah, absolutely. I, I love movies. Were you watching films when you were a kid? Yeah, you watched what was on TV. It was channel 4, 6, 12, and the UHF channel 18. Sure. <laughs> and so the ones I really remember vividly were the UHF channel 18 ones, because they were the cheapest ones they could get. It was a lot of Godzilla movies. I remember for years, they ran the Basil Rathbone, Nigel Bruce, Sherlock Holmes oh, movies. Oh, God, I was watching one the other day. Terror by Night. There was one during World War II, which ends with them in a car in front of a 
rear projection of the like the Washington Monument and stuff and talking about how America is going to come into the war and save democratic values, it still makes me kind of misty. But I remember my mother telling me when I was about 10 that I needed to stay up late tonight because there was a very special movie on TV and I had to watch it with her. And it was notorious Hitchcock movie. And I, it's a great movie. And even at 10, I could appreciate it was a great movie. But the concept of staying up till midnight on a school night for a movie, I think kind of fused this idea that movies were fun and you could get away with stuff and have a good time. And what do you think it was that your mother wanted you to stay up till midnight watching movies? She wanted a movie companion? I think she and my dad were not getting along very well. <laughs> I was in the identical situation, and my dad was the moviegoer. The very first movie that I began that pas de deux with my dad was Sorry, Wrong Number, which to this day I have an annual appointment with Burt Lancaster and Barbara Stanwyck and Ed Begley Sr. Sorry, Wrong Number is one of my favorites, too, because I love a confined space uh, thriller and uh, it also contains the, the, the classic Barbara Stanwyck line, Operator, Operator, I'm a hopeless invalid. <laughs> and I just, I just <laughs> like the idea of describing herself as hopeless. I love that actor. What was that actor who plays uh, the old man? And he says, I can be reached at Bowery 2 1000. And then she calls Bowery 2 1000. He goes, No, we can't take no messages here, ma'am. What number am I calling? He says, the city morgue, man. <laughs> if that's not a music cue, I don't know what it is. Now, where did you go to college? I went to several. I started at the University of Minnesota. I was born in Wisconsin. I didn't get into my first choice college, and they had the latest application deadline. It wasn't a great plan. And then I transferred to, went to the University of Wisconsin at Madison for a few years, which was great. I wanted to be an actor in, in those days. And I did tons of theater. But over the course of those couple of years, I realized writing was the thing I wanted to do. Had you been writing while you were in college or you concentrated on acting? You had. And I, and I had a playwriting teacher who was uh, directing me in Arsenic and Old Lace at the time. And I asked him how I was doing. And he, he started complimenting my, my play that I was writing. And I said, <laughs> no, 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 I mean in the show. I, I know what you mean, Mr. Cap. I... <laughs> And he encouraged me to get out. He said, if you want to make movies, which I did by then, go west or go east, but we don't really do them here. So I applied to UCLA's film school and got in there. For graduate school? No, still undergrad. I stretched it out to a healthy... 11 years. <laughs> yeah, it was junior year was three of the best years of my I life. I turned 30 in my film class. <laughs> and was the focus when you were at UCLA on screenwriting? Yeah, by then I knew... That's, I, I, I want to write scripts. And were there distinguished alums or were there distinguished mentors to come in and guest teach or none of that? They didn't then. I mean, you'd get the occasional person coming and showing you their movie and doing a Q&A. But in terms of faculty, the guy I liked best was this, uh, a professor named Richard Walter, who was there for probably 40 years. And he was very good and very imitatable and very quotable. But he was also very brass tacks, which was great because he would interrupt someone midstream when talking about when they're trying to tell their idea. And he'd say, do you know what kind of movies I like? I like films that are not boring films and force you into move it, move it. Things must happen early and often. And that's how characters revealed. And I liked that. When you're there and you're in a prestigious program, a teacher in a class like that, what does he or she have to offer you? There are two things. First, you start taking yourself seriously, which if you're from a small town in Wisconsin is an important step because everyone thinks you're you know, an asshole for wanting to do what you do or in Midwestern terms, making kind of a production out of yourself. Yeah. So to want to go off and work in Hollywood is absurd. And when you get to a place where people start to accept that as the norm and most other people want to do that too, it's a really important step. But- the most important thing I think I got out of UCLA was relationships with other students. Because everyone there, it's a kind of writing where you really need community, because especially because it's going to be so relentlessly collaborative as your career goes on, if all goes well. And to be surrounded by other people who want to write, who want to do what you want to do, and who are nowhere in their career, so you don't have to worry about jealousy, is huge. And you learn from them, and you see some who are better than you, and you see ideally some who are worse than you. And those were really important relationships. Remember Alexander Payne was, he was getting his master's when I was getting my undergrad, but we, you know, you all work on each other's films. And you just kind of, 
you can spot the winners out of the gate. You can tell who's good. And Alexander was always supremely confident, and his stuff was really good. There's a guy named Don Payne who's since passed away who went on to write a lot of The Simpsons and a number of films. Don and I were great friends. But you find those people who will read your work and be critical without devastating you. And those are essential relationships. When you finished UCLA, what happens next? I had an internship working for a guy who was a, a distributor's rep in the U.S. So if there's a video distributor in Australia and they wanted horror titles, we would buy horror titles like Sorority House Massacre 3 and then get the deliverable elements to them in their home country. Certain amount of porn, but you know a lot of slasher movies and a lot of stuff like that. So I would go to film markets, which was eye-opening to see what they were like. I actually went to Cannes when I was 24 years old, and he paid for it because we were picking up all these titles for foreign distributors. And it was the Cannes Film Festival, but we weren't going to the festival. It was just at the same time. We were going to the Cannes Film Market. You went to the Marche. Which is in the basement of the Palais. Yeah. It is truly a horror show. But, you know, I was making money to work in the movie business. And again, I learned an enormous amount because I... I saw a, lot, a ton of movies and I read a lot of scripts and I felt like I can do better than this. And through that, I met an Argentine director named Martin Donovan, not the actor Martin Donovan. And he had an idea for a movie, which we wrote together and then just sort of appointed ourselves producers of and went out and raised money by hook or crook and credit cards and made my, our first movie, which was Apartment Zero. And then from there, I started working. And how much money was the budget of the film, if you recall? It was a million two, of which we'd raised about 500000 when we started shooting. <laughs> it was, it, no, it was terribly planned. And I was 24 years old, so I had no yeah. idea what I was doing. You didn't know how stupid it was what you were doing, so you just kept going. No, and I was also, for some reason, we were comfortable lying to people. Right. We tricked Colin Firth and Hart Bachner into being in the film, both of whom were, you know, working actors at the time and assumed that we would be able to pay our bills. And then we, using that cast and a budget, which we, turns out, had, were in no way able to meet, we banked it with RCA Columbia Home Video with some help from this guy I was working for and uh, borrowed against the contract. And, and then there was an unscrupulous real estate guy from the Isle of Man who died. And it was really a, was a classic indie movie story. But we got our movie done. And then when we got to post and had no money to finish, I managed to sell a script, uh, which became this movie Bad Influence that Curtis Hansen directed. And so I just took everything from that script and put it into finishing Apartment Zero. And what was it like working with Donovan? What did you learn in your first experience about that relationship between the director and the writer? Martin was somebody who took me seriously. I think mentors, because he was a mentor figure, he told me I was good and valued the stuff I wrote. He was 14 years older than me, which helped because I also took him seriously. And he had directed one indie movie uh, before, uh, very low budget, like 50,000, 60,000, I think. And he also had a, a reverence for old Hollywood, so we watched everything. I mean, the look on his face when he would ask me if I'd seen a film like A Place in the Sun, and I'd say no, was one of joy. He wasn't looking down on me for what a terrible hole in your film vocabulary. It was, what an exciting opportunity. We're going to rent it now and watch it tonight. And that kind of unbridled enthusiasm, you, you can't find any, it just everywhere. So that was, that was important. He took me very seriously. And we wrote one or two other scripts together another one of which was made, but then I was feeling more comfortable writing on my own. And also our viewpoints were wildly different. When you worked with him, when the film was being made, what was your initial experience with someone shooting your material? Because he was also the writer, we, we, right. we wrote it together. He was more collegial about it. He was, but it was an unusual experience also because I was also the producer with him. And even at that age, was far more realistic about what we had and what we didn't have. And Martin would do things like come up with a tango scene in the street and call all his friends on the way to the set that day and then want to shoot it that night. And I would have to say, uh, maybe one or two dancers <laughs> in the background. Absolutely. I think, no, there will be a hundred of them. There will be elephants. Yeah. I remember I was horribly spoiled. Colin Firth, who was probably 28 at the time and was just getting some renown in England, 
came to me on one of the first nights, and there was a line he wanted to change, and he felt that the thing he wanted to say the, that I had at the beginning, he thought it would be easier at the end, and would I mind terribly if, if he moved that uh, line to the end of the, the thing. And I, I said, no, that'd be great. Go ahead. And I sort of assumed that's how it would always be in Hollywood. <laughs> yes, a request. <laughs> yeah. I have a request. I'd like to fill out a form. <laughs> now, after the Martin Donovic experience, what was next? Well, this bad influence was a script I'd written on my own. How was Hanson different from uh, Donovan? Curtis was far more tethered in what can really be accomplished, what can be done. Martin is a brilliant but impractical dreamer. And Curtis you know, had been in Hollywood for a very long time. So we went, I rewrote the whole script with him in his uh, garage office. And it was a tutorial specifically about screenwriting. I felt like I knew a lot about writing, but about screenwriting for movies that are about to go get shot. That's where I learned a ton. For example? Well, there was a scene in Bad Influence where Rob Lowe comes to be a, a bad guy, and we're worried about James Spader and James Spader's brother, played by Christian Clemenson. And we're going to Christian Clemenson's apartment and to make us worried. You know, I had a scene with Rob Lowe, it was two pages long. He was menacing somebody on the street, and then he goes into the building. And Curtis said, I'd rather lose track of him, and also I don't have time to shoot that. There's a fence, and it's got vertical spiky bars in it. Right. And as we pan down, as we track down the line of vertical spiky bars, we see that one of them is missing, and he pushes in slightly. Right. The implication in the viewer's mind being somebody took the scary spiky bar out, and it was just brilliant screenwriting. It used an image to convey menace instead of a two-page dialogue scene, which is, again, like the old Billy Wilder lesson of if you use a visual to show something, the audience will love you forever because they draw the conclusion in their own mind and they're participants in your movie instead of just watching. Screenwriter and director David Kep. In the annals of great film partnerships, few have been as long-lasting and celebrated as Martin Scorsese's with his editor, Thelma Schoonmaker. She's worked on every movie of his since Raging Bull. She told me their collaboration begins when she watches the daily footage. He wants me to look at it cold and tell him if it works. So that is my part of my job. So I tell him what I think, he tells me what he thinks, and from those incredibly rich reactions of him, I then begin to create selects, and then I do the first cut before he comes in when he's through shooting. And then from that point on, we do all the rest of the 12 different edits of the movie together. Very 12 um, different edits of the right. movie? That's what we prefer to do if we can. Hear more of my conversation with Thelma Schoonmaker at heresthething.org. After the break, David Kep talks about a time he disagreed with Steven Spielberg over a scene in the sequel to Jurassic Park. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing. David Kep is quick to admit... 
He got very lucky early in his career. A turning point came when his script for a film he thought would be a small one caught a big-name director's eye. Death Becomes Her, uh, a script I'd written with Martin that we had imagined would be another indie movie, maybe a $5 million budget this time. But I was starting to get some notice at the time for Bad Influence, and so I, I managed to sell it to Universal. And I remember Casey Silver, who was the head of Universal, Universal thought it was sort of a lark, and it was this strange black comedy that maybe they'd make or maybe they wouldn't, but it barely cost anything. And I remember Casey Silver, who was a, a great supporter of mine, who was the head of production at the time, called me one day and said, so I sent your script to a few directors. And I said, oh, good. And he I had to go. And he said, Bob Zemeckis wants to direct it. And he sounded, he sounded disappointed. Because <laughs> Bob, at the time, for Universal, had just finished the Back to the Future trilogy. No doubt they wanted something a little more surefire commercial out of him. But he took an interest in this bizarre black comedy, which then he cast within an inch of its life with Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn and Bruce Willis and um, made the delightfully bizarre movie he made. And then I was sort of off and running. Then that got Spielberg's attention, who wanted to meet and read some of the other things I'd done for Universal because I was writing for them at the time and was looking for somebody to help him with uh, Jurassic Park. It's a loathsome story, mine, from 24 <laughs> to 29 years old. It really, it's a miracle I have any friends at all. It's sad. It's, it's, it's tough to tell because it went so riotously well for me. And it's just not emblematic of what you need to do, really, in the movie business. you got to hang around and keep writing and keep writing and keep writing. I like to think those days came for me later because it can't all go like that all the time, and it didn't. When you're working with a director who's a big director, and they say to you, I'm going to cut the first two pages, whatever their edict is, and I'm talking about you early in your career, you just defer? Or do you resist? And do you kind of push back? I would push back, and I would invariably lose. I remember one of the first things I asked Bob was, what do we do when we disagree? And he said, one of, we talk about it endlessly, and one of us will persuade the other through logic. Which sounds good, and I'm absolutely sure that he intended that to be the case. But that's not the case. A director will and must do what they see. And so I think that if you can get in their head enough to create doubt about something that you think is a mistake. Did you do that? Did you, did you succeed at that from time to time? I would try, and I would occasionally succeed, but not often. Now, it went, it, it went very well. I liked our collaboration on Death Becomes Her. Our sensibilities were a little different. His perhaps broader and more visual, mine a bit drier. There's a scene in which, uh, in an emergency room, when Sidney Pollock comes in and has to tell her she's dead. And I think that that's the tone I would have liked for the whole movie. It's a sort of masterpiece of dry, understated comedy. But Bob had different ideas and was thinking more in terms of the emerging uh, CG and how to use it, and that's fine. The only one that really kind of bothered me and I could never get over I felt there was a note that caused our structure to partially collapse in a later draft. To me, movies are structure. And that structural idea to me was sort of central to making the whole thing work. But in general, it was great. And I was working with big, accomplished Hollywood movie stars at the peak of their crafts. As the writer, at what point did you discover that you had to process the notes of the star as well? What movie? A bad influence, because Rob Lowe, who was very hot at the time, was attached to play the lead, and I, I thought that was a, a mistake, because he's a sympathetic lead who we have to imagine doesn't do very well with women, and I just didn't see anybody believing that. But there was a sort of seductive bad guy character, and I felt he'd be much better off playing. Nobody really agreed with me, so I got Rob to have lunch with me. I remember talking about Donna Reed and From Here to Eternity and, and saying, <laughs> you've never done this. They won't see it coming. Of course you should be the bad guy. And he agreed. And so I, I managed to turn things around a little bit. So I saw also, though, the importance of getting the star on your side because they're the ones who have to do it. And I really have... I really felt like my high school and college acting was has been beneficial to me my whole career because you're the one who has to do it. You're the one who doesn't want to look stupid. You're the one who doesn't want to look fat in these clothes and I can't run in these shoes. And those are really valid points. 
I've been frustrated by actor's notes sometimes because if, because they're difficult or I don't agree with it or, or whatever. But a really good actor always comes at it like their character's lawyer. They're sort of dispassionately. <laughs> I've never thought of that. That's a great line. Well, my client, That's a great line. my client simply wouldn't do that. And I get it. You're their advocate for that character. And they must see it from that character's point of view. You have to juggle everybody's. But when you come to the Spielberg experience, and of course, Jurassic Park was a Crichton novel. Yeah. It was a Crichton novel. They tried a couple different versions of the script. They tried one with Crichton, one with one or two other writers, and it, it wasn't working out. But Stephen had some very clear ideas about how to make these things real. So he wanted uh, someone to come in and start over. And you shared credit with Crichton? Yes. Problem with Stephen is, you know, when I was 13 years old, Jaws came out, and I, I had to ride my bike to the Lake Theater in Pewaukee to watch it because my parents wouldn't let me go. So from the years when I was 13 till I was, say, 20, it was Jaws, Close Encounters, Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.T. These are your formative sponge-like years. So for a, a writer of my generation, it's, Spielberg's it. So now to write for him and to disagree with him and to offer critical assessments of his ideas was really tough. And I'm, he was used to it. So I remember in our first couple meetings, he went out of his way to say things like, you know, well, when I'm working with a peer like yourself, what I, it was obvious he was trying to tell me to relax. All I had going for me was my opinions. And if I was going to come in and just parrot his, a certain amount of that, sure, sure, everybody likes it. But you don't want a neutered collaborator. You want somebody to come in who's going to have some ideas to contribute and possibly resist some of yours that might not be good. How did it go? It went fine. I think it took me a few movies. I've written four of his that he directed, and I think it took me a few movies to get more into my stride on that. There was one kind of clarifying moment. It was in the second movie, uh, Lost World. There was a bit where Jeff Goldblum's adopted daughter is a gymnast, and Stephen wanted a sequence later in the movie where she spins around some bars and kicks a velociraptor and makes it fall over. And I never liked it. I just, I thought the idea of the little girl kicking the velociraptor was bad for her character and bad, certainly bad for the velociraptor's character. So I would just not write it and not write it and not write it, hoping it would just go away. You know, one day the double goldenrod pages had gone in or something we were shooting and he said, hey, I, I noticed you, you, you forgot again to do the, the, the velociraptor thing on the bars. You got to write that up because we're, when we shoot that, we're going to blah, 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 blah. And I said, well, Stephen, I don't want to write that. I don't think it's going to work. I'm afraid people will laugh at it. I was as straightforward and negative about it as I could possibly be. And he paused and he said, oh, no, you, oh, no, you shouldn't. No, 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 don't write it. Absolutely. If you feel that strongly, you should not write it. When I shoot it, what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring her down over here. Right, 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 right. And then he shot it. And I realized what you have to get about directors is they must do what they see. You can't bend them to your will. But, but you've worked with so many great, really legendary directors. And I'm wondering, like, when you work with Spielberg, among his many gifts, what's the gift that impressed you the most about him as a director? There's as a director and as a storyteller. As a director, his ability to compose on the fly, I've never, ever seen anything like it. As a storyteller, what I most appreciate about Stephen is there's a real joyfulness, and he has no contempt for the audience. He is the person in the audience with popcorn. So in your filmography, from one legendary director to the next, you go from Crichton's world of dinosaurs to Pacino was a Puerto Rican crime boss in New York. And I'll, I'll never forget the opening shot of that film, that great opening shot. He's on the gurney, the overhead shot. That film with Brian De Palma, what was the De Palma experience? Carlito's Way was the first of three movies Brian and I would do. And again, yes, very, very hands-on. But Brian wants you to do the writing. He's not there to do it himself or he'd do it himself. He's probably written about half the movies he's directed or more. So he, he is certainly there for your viewpoint and wants to listen to you and would like you to be right. What I found Brian and Steven both had in common, if there was a shot they wanted to do or a sequence they wanted to get to, and they saw it very clearly and they told it to me, 
they were really happy to let me figure out how on earth is the story going to accommodate this? How is that going to end up in this movie? And I was happy with that because then I got to go away and do the work. You usually don't want someone to try to figure out your problems for you. Tell me what the problem is. Tell me what the challenge is. Brian was, there's just a, a great sense of comradeship. You know, you're really in it. Brian's a lot of laughs. He's a very funny guy. Clever. He's very clever. And he, I think of probably of all the directors I've ever worked with, Brian is the one who listens the most. That doesn't mean he's going to go along with whatever you have to say, but he's g genuinely listening when you're talking and processing and enjoys the debate and will we'll tell you if you're wrong or why he thinks you're wrong. What was the hardest one for you to write? I did an Indiana Jones movie. And it was just the weight of expectation of 20 years. A lot of history, yeah. 30 years of cultural expectation and you know everybody who's seen those movies and loves those movies has a feeling about what it ought to be steven's feelings about what it ought to be george lucas's feelings which are not always the same harrison's it, it, it was just it was a crushing load of things to try to satisfy it would have been far easier to write the heartbreaking story of my parents divorce let's talk about directing when do you decide to take the ultimate leap i think i should direct the script actually I knew that writing is what I love to do the most. It's what gives me the most satisfaction. Directing is what you do when you have something that you would like to see the way it is in your head. And for better or worse, you have a far better chance of seeing it the way it is in your head than you do working with even a talented director. That doesn't mean it will be better, but it means it will be yours. And the mistakes that are made are yours. And I really most wanted the chance to edit and to work directly with actors. As a screenwriter, you're censoring yourself with actors because you don't want to undercut the director. It's a sort of sacred relationship they have, and you don't want to get in the middle of that. So you offer your insights, but you can't say everything you'd like to say. And when you started directing, not later on, but when you began, what was your shortcoming? What was the thing you needed the most work on? I remember a director friend of mine who is uh, far too blunt, but I love him for it occasionally, said when he saw my first cut of it, he said, you shot your script. I said, yeah. <laughs> Could you elaborate? I love that. Said, you didn't interpret that. your script. My God, you shot the script. Yeah. It's so you. He said, no, he said, you didn't interpret it. You shot it. Literally. Everything. Every word of your script is there. And that's great if that's what was your intention. But it doesn't have, you didn't take the step away from writing and into directing it. Because they're different. And I didn't know what he meant for a couple of movies. Are you going to direct another movie? Are you directing again soon? I hope so. I got, you know, I, I got a lot of writing to do at the moment. I just finished a, another book and I have a few things. So I would like to, yeah. I am your biggest fan. I mean, the breadth of your work, the, the, the distinctive styles of films, Carlito, Mission, all of them. Thanks for doing this. Pleasure. David Kep, his most recent work is a film he wrote and directed, You Should Have Left starring Kevin Bacon and Amanda Seyfried. It came out last year. Walter Murch is a legendary film and sound editor. He was part of the early days of American Zoetrope, the film production company founded by Francis Ford Coppola and George Lucas. He is well known for his long partnership with Coppola and later with the late Anthony Minghella. Walter Murch's most recent project is a documentary he wrote and edited called Coup 53, about a U.S. and British-led effort to overthrow the Iranian government in 1953. I met the director, Taghi Amirani, when I was editing another documentary, Particle Fever, about the search for the Higgs boson at the Large Hadron Collider in Geneva. We hit it off because Tuggy graduated in physics from Nottingham University, and this was particle physics. We just kept up a relationship, and uh, I never thought I'd work on it, but I was editing for Brad Bird on his film Tomorrowland, and that came to an end. And I was at loose ends, and my wife and Tuggy put their heads together and said, what Walter needs is to work on a little documentary for six months. And it sounded good. It still is good. But six months has turned into six years. 
I watched the film, and it seems that almost the beginning is like a preface. You linger with that guy. That's Tagi. That's the director, Tagi Yamarani. Right. And you kind of stay with him for quite a bit of time. It's about half an hour. I mean, half an hour in a film could be an eternity. If you, right. You know, but, but, you're, but you're with him. It's almost like the film becomes a completely different film, and it takes off into the case, if you will. Well, we were just following the structure of Psycho, which does a similar trick. You know, you're right. with Marion Crane for 35 minutes, and then she's gotten rid of. She's dead. <laughs> and uh, you follow the rest of the story. I'm going to quote you on that, that Psycho was the template for Coup 53. If Hitchcock could do it, so could we. But it, it evolved <laughs> organically. The film took off, really, from the discovery of this transcript of the MI6 agent and if we have the transcript, there must be tapes or there must be a film that goes with it. And it was the search for those missing ingredients that we never found, but we found contradictory evidence. Some people said they don't exist. Some people say they do exist. So the question, that was a trail that we followed for about 15 minutes, actually, of searching for them. And then at that point, we said, we've reached the end of the trail and we're going to ask Rafe Fines to walk over the... Yeah, I love that. For those who don't see it, Rafe Fines creates this character, this real this real person, and he inhabits that character. And what a coup, yeah. no pun intended, yeah. for you to have Rafe Fines play that right? part in your film. I'd, He's such a wonderful actor. Yeah, I met Rafe when we were doing English Patient back in the mid-90s, and we yeah. kept up over the years, and we came to this fork in the road, which is we have the transcript, but how are we going to turn it into cinema? And well, right. let's get an actor to read the lines. Why don't we get Ray Fiennes to be the actor? <laughs> and then why don't we stage it in the very same room at the Savoy Hotel in which all of these other interviews were done in the mid 80s, which revealed the essence of what had happened in, in this coup, which uh, was a British American co-production, so to speak, and which successfully, unfortunately, deposed this nascent democracy in Iran and, you know, spoiled we're for it ever since. Yeah. Right. History is the wiser for what happened back then. Now, to wind it back in the origin story, you grew up in New York. Yeah. And when you went to Hopkins, you were going to go into, into a scientific field, correct? Yeah. Oceanography and geology, yeah. My interest in film didn't really evolve until a couple of years later, and that dovetailed with a teenage obsession, which I'd had, with tape recording. And the manipulation of that tape cutting it up into little pieces is basically a, a simple kind of filming. So that, that was where I kind of returned to my roots in a sense that the, the passions that you have when you're 10 or 11 years old are somehow more fundamentally who you are than before or after. Because, you know, you, you know something about the world, but you're right. not yet infected with peer pressure in quite the right. same and way. filtering. That, yeah. Less, you're less filtered. Yeah. Now, when you're there at Hopkins, you meet Deschanel when you're there, correct? Yeah. And you guys decided to head off together, weren't you, well, to go to film school? He's, he's a year younger than me. So, right. yeah, Matthew Robbins and I, who I met at Hopkins, we went off to USC Cinema as a graduate student. And Caleb phoned us up a couple of months later and said, how is it out there? And we said, it's great. Come on out. And... Uh, he did. He followed us and immediately became known as a great cameraman. There was something about his, his knees that allowed him to move with a camera, with a kind of Steadicam camera before Steadicam was invented. With the human Steadicam. Yeah. So you're out there and you're at USC for two years. You're in the graduate program? Yeah. yeah. And what's the first thing you want to do when you're out there? Like You're at USC film school for what? You know, that's the, uh, the lecture that they give on the first day of school is, we know you all want to become directors, but we're going to smash that dream immediately. You're going to have to do everything. And it's only at the end that you will discover where your real talents lie. And even if you become a director, having experienced all these other crafts, you'll know 
what it takes to be a good sound recordist. Right. When you finish at USC, what are you saying to yourself? So I want to go do what? I'm married. I'm about to have a kid. And you just try to support you need a job. yourself. Yeah. <laughs> right. So when you leave there and you got to get a job, what's your first job? Sweeping floors at Encyclopedia Britannica Films. And I graduated there from sweeping floors to editing one of their documentary films. And then uh, I was out of work and you kind of pick up gigs. It's sort of the gig economy. Uh, can you yeah. sync ADR lines? Yeah, I can do that. And then I got a job. All of which you'd studied at, U at, U at U USC. Yeah. Yeah. You had that that background from USC. Well, that's, you know, you, you had to do everything. So exactly. Uh, exactly. whatever they yeah. asked you to do, you would say yes. You were even prepared. if you even if you didn't know how to do it, you said yes, I can do that. And then you learn how to do it. And you meet Lucas before Coppola, correct? Well, I, I met George. Well, you, knew, you knew Lucas in school. From school, yeah. Francis right. was a legend. He he was four years older than us at UCLA, and he'd done this hat trick which is he not only got a job directing a real film, but he handed it in for his master's thesis. So the, the fact that somebody from film school actually directed a film, who, who, somebody who had no connection with the film industry, Francis right. came out of the blue, and he was an inspiration to us. And George and I at school had been up for a scholarship at Warner Brothers. George won, naturally, because even back then he was George Lucas. And he wanted to be in animation. You know, he, he founded what later on became Pixar, which is his connection. But he arrived the day they shut down the animation studio at Warner Brothers. So he just wandered around and he saw somebody directing a film on the lot. One person, the guy had a beard, George had a beard, so beards connect with each other. Yeah. And uh, it was Francis. They understand each other. Yeah, they understand each other. And it was Francis. And Francis said, okay, George, come up with a one good idea every day and I'll shoot it. And George did. <laughs> this was on the film Finian's Rainbow. Finian's Rainbow, yeah. So George and Francis bonded. And one thing led to another. And I got a call from George in early 1969, saying, could I cut the sound for the film that Francis had just directed, The Rain People? And uh, that started my relationship with Francis, which continues to this day. I'm assuming that once you go to Northern California, and we'll get into the American zoetrope and Francis orbit there, what was the impetus to, for you to move there, for you to relocate there? Why did you do that? Again, George and Francis, they right. had they shot- were both the, They were both living up there. Yeah, yeah. Well, they had been, they'd shot the rain people and ended up shooting the last four weeks in Ogallala, Nebraska, operating out of an old Tom McCann shoe store that had gone out of business. Right. And at the end of it, they thought, wait a minute, we've been making a motion picture out of an old shoe store in Nebraska we don't have to be in Los Angeles. We can be anywhere. You know, youthful idealism. And that's when Francis decided to set up uh, a studio in San Francisco, which became yeah. Zoetrope. Zoetrope. What was it about Coppola? You won an Oscar for cutting his film. What was it about him you think was his gift? The quote I love from him is when he was shooting Cotton Club and the reporter asked him, they were on location and things weren't going well. And the reporter said, well, you're the director. Why don't you just make it happen? And he said, you misunderstand what a director of a film is. The director of a film is the ringmaster of a circus that is inventing itself. So there's this collaborative aspect to it that Francis holds everything together at the same time. And it's always veering into chaos, but chaos can be very productive if you can control it. I mean, an example of his directorial essence, I think, is something that happened almost on the first day of shooting The Godfather. And he'd made a pact with himself and with all of the actors that there was to be very little motion of the hands with the Italians, that he wanted things to be very 
sober and businesslike. And he was shooting the baker coming to ask for permission for his daughter to marry the prisoner of war that was working in the bakery, shooting over Marlon Brando's shoulder. And, okay, take one. And the baker starts giving his speech and the hands come up and the hands are doing this incredible dance. And Francis later said his his heart sank because this was exactly what he didn't <laughs> want. This was like an omen for the whole film was going to be things he didn't want. So what do you do in that case? At the end of the take, he said, cut. Very good. In fact, the performance was fine, except for the hands. So he said, Tom, meaning Tom Hagen, Robert Duval, Tom, you would have already given, I, we, we need to do it again because I made a mistake, Francis said. We're coming in in the middle of this scene and Tom Hagen would have already given you a glass of brandy because he knows you would be nervous. So Robert Duval came over and filled up a little glass of brandy right to the brim, put it in the actor's hands and then said, That's okay, brilliant. action. So, you know, the, the I'm going to remember that. The hands are moving, but you can't spill the brandy, but they're, they're not the over gestural problem that happened with take one. So Francis said, it's my fault. And so the actor the performance on the second take was even better because now the actor was going to save Francis from Francis's mistake. So that's the take that's in the movie. Oh, my God. Oscar-winning sound and film editor, Walter Murch. If you're enjoying this conversation, tell a friend and be sure to follow Here's the Thing on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back... Walter Murch talks about Francis Ford Coppola's controlled chaos style of filmmaking. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing. In the early years of American Zoetrope, Walter Murch was often juggling various projects between founders George Lucas and Francis Ford Coppola. We were making THX 1138 while Francis was shooting The Godfather. And when we finished THX, we took it to Cannes. It played on the kind of the anti-festival there. And then I came back to work on the sound of the post-production sound of The Godfather, the mix, mm -hmm. the sound effects in the mix. Did you kind of have a sense when you were doing that? Because when you're doing the sound, you're given a, a final cut of the film to mix the sound and the film is locked, correct? No, it was, it was evolving as we were working on right. it. It's part of the zoetrope aesthetic is that the sound mm -hmm. influences the editing and the editing influences the sound. Is that common? Is that ordinary? No, certainly not back then. But it's part of this controlled chaos idea that it's right. risky, but we felt it was worth the risk. 
Well, I want to get to the controlled chaos when we talk about apocalypse, but what I want to also ask you is, you're the first person to win an Oscar for a film cut on an Avid, correct? Yes. And you are one of the only people to be nominated and or win Oscars on multiple platforms. I think you've been nominated and you've won Academy Awards on like four different iterations of editing equipment, correct? Right. Yes, true. Films are edited now so much quicker than they were 40 years ago. Do you feel that something's lost as a result of that? I think the amount of time has remained essentially the same. What's changed is that as you edit it, you can investigate lots of different ways. But the distance from the end of shooting to when the films are in the theaters, it's pretty constant. It's about a year from the beginning of shooting to the film in the theater, whether you're editing on a digital platform or not. If you really want to edit fast, if that's the only goal, yes, you can do it faster now using digital tools, but that's not the only requirement. We want to make a good film. And to make a good film, you have to take the time. And that's the the creative time is the determinant on this. Now, I just want to have a quick glance at Apocalypse. When he first contacted you, like, how did you get involved in that film? How would you describe, because Apocalypse is always presented, even from his wife's documentary, Eleanor, that it was this chaotic experience. What is your recollection of, of the making of Apocalypse? What was it like for you? It was crazy. I was editing the film Julia in London, and I got a call from Francis. Can you fly to the Philippines to discuss the final mix? Sure. So a trip was arranged over the weekend to fly from London to Manila and then to the location. And people were coming from all over the world. Tomita, who was going to do the music for the film, uh, was coming from Japan. And Richard Beggs and Richie Marks were coming from San Francisco. So it was a big meeting that was planned. But that was right after Marty Sheen had his heart attack. So we all arrived and everything was in this wonderful chaos, you know. But we had the meeting. I mean, this is another example of Francis's determination. His main actor has had a heart attack and he is now hosting a meeting to discuss the technicalities of a mix that won't happen for ultimately for another two years. That was where the idea of inventing a totally new format for this film was born. How long had they been shooting when you showed up? Almost a year. Are they done shooting or they're getting close to being done? Mm -hmm. They're three months away from the end of shooting. (laughs) Which is the normal schedule for a film is three months. They're in the final three. That that, that says it all. We're in the final three months of shooting. 256 days of shooting. Had you been looking at footage prior to that? There was a typhoon, speaking of chaos, in the summer of 76. Francis had been shooting for perhaps four months, and the typhoon destroyed all the sets, so production was shut down. Francis came back to San Francisco, and we had a meeting. He showed me what he had shot up until then, and he said, is there anything missing? And I thought, well, there's a scene missing, I think, which is it would be good to have a scene where the boat does what it's supposed to do as it goes up river. This is a patrol boat that is supposed to stop contraband material from getting down river. So let's write a scene where the boat does a police action and something goes bad and people get killed. And they kill the family in the boat. Right. And he said, okay, write that scene and we'll do it. So I sat down and wrote the Sampan Massacre scene And uh, Francis took it back to the Philippines and, you know, obviously changed it and actors do what actors do. But essentially, the idea of that scene was something that occurred to me from reading and looking at the material of things that had been shot up to that point. Now, you cut the film. You edited the film. Well, I mean, that's another story. I was hired just to do the sound because when I joined the film, it was August 77. And the idea was somehow improbably that the film would be in the theaters by Christmas. And, you know, what did I know? Maybe maybe it's possible. But it was pretty clear to me at that point that this was not going to happen. And that's when 
I joined the editorial team. There were two editors working on the film at that time. I became the third editor on on the film. Now, when have there been moments where you fought for a cut and you were right, either to lift out or preserve something, and you fought for a cut and the director, you were wrong and they were right? Before I answer that question, we were doing a final ADR with Marlon Brando on The Godfather. And we got about halfway through the film and Francis said, well, I got to go now. So you guys continue. So I was, whatever I was, 26 years old. And here I am in the dark alone with Marlon Brando, uh, supposedly directing him (laughs) in ADR and they're changing reels. And in the dark, I hear this voice that says, people say I mumble. I thought, what am I going to say to Marlon Brando about that? And I said, yes, that's true. People do say that you mumble. And he said, well, they're right. I do mumble. And I'll tell you why. Because when we shoot these films, I don't know what these scenes are going to be in the film or out of the film. I don't know what order the scenes are going to be in. So when I'm doing the scenes, I don't move my lips very much so that if it comes to it, we can change the dialogue. I can change my performance. And nobody's (laughs) very much the wiser. I never thought of that. Oh, my God. In my mind, you couldn't think about it in terms of what drove the story. Right. It was all about behavior and and, and performance, correct? Yeah. Yeah. I have to say, at that point in the film, there were two editors, and I was editing the first half of the film up to and including the Sampan Massacre, and Richie Marks was handling everything after that. So I, I was an observer to what they were doing, but I didn't know all of the ins and outs of, of that. I mean, the, the famous, should we cut this scene in that film is the French plantation scene. Right. Which was a huge- Was restored for the redux. A hugely, a huge operation, very expensive, very detailed set, lots of characters. And as we were- editing the film, the scene shrank and it shrank and it shrank until I think in the end, just before it completely disappeared, there were maybe two or three shots from it. It was like a kind of a a mist of a scene. It was just some images and you didn't know what to make of them. And then finally it disappeared completely. We put it back in Apocalypse Redux. In fact, Putting that scene back was the whole reason for doing the Redux. The French Canal Plus people wanted a a DVD extra because Christian Marcon, the actor in that scene, had just died, and they wanted Mm -hmm. to see him. And then as these things happened, one thing led to another, and it became this huge operation of rehabilitating a number of scenes that had been cut out. But the scene essentially comes too late in the film for you to know how to take it. Digest it. Yeah. Yeah. So you directed one film, Return to Oz, and it was a disappointing experience for you from what I read. What was your feeling about directing again after that experience? No, I I mean, after it was finished, uh, you know, there's inevitably a period of recovery on any film. And uh, then I tried to get a couple of other projects uh, off the ground. So you wanted to direct again after? Yeah, but... No, I have four kids, and there's the, the old joke, you know, how do you spell directing? W-A-I-T-I-N-G. That when you're <laughs> directing, trying to get something off the ground, there's a lot of downtime unless you're a completely established director. Return to Oz was a financial failure and critically extremely mixed results. It's a wonderful film, by the way. It just didn't happen. I directed one film, and I had the resources to make a wonderful film. I had a great script. I had a great cast. What I learned about directing was that patience you need to help see everything. You're you're being asked about everything. And for me, the patience to stand there all day long, because when you're an actor, you go back to your trailer and you go read a magazine. And with a director, you can't hide in your trailer. Right. You got to be there and you got to answer the questions and, and, and you're in charge, so to speak. And I found I didn't have the patience to direct other actors, yeah. to tell the cinematographer, no, no, put the camera here. I want it here. Right. And I just didn't have the patience to negotiate with all those people. You know what I mean? Yeah. A wonderful quote from Warren Beatty, who also is an actor director. And he said, the key to acting is to be 
in control of being out of control, the key to directing is to be out of control of being in control. And that's the thing that drives you crazy when you go in front of the camera and then go behind the camera is you're alternating between, you know, searing heat on the one side and ice on the other. So, yeah, you also have to be in the moment, which is what you're shooting right now, but you also have to live in the past, meaning take into consideration everything that you've shot up till now, and you have to live in the future, which is what are we going to do tomorrow? What are we going to do next week? So it's a highly uncomfortable state of being unless you're completely adapted to it, I think. And that's why if you become a director when you're of combat age, which is to say, you know, 20 years old, then it kind of becomes part of who you are. That wasn't the case where I was. I was 40 when I directed Return to Oz. And in a sense, I knew too much. I was already too set in my ways, a certain thing. And yeah, I, had I was to, in my early 40s. Yeah, I had to learn how to un, undo some of those assumptions. I'm assuming you have some thoughts about how the COVID has affected the, the way we shoot and exhibit films as well. Does that trouble you? Well, that, that's actually, it helped us in a weird way with Coup 53 because we had a great premiere of the film at Telluride and London, but no distributor would pick it up. It, there's some kind of third rail aspect to the film that makes distributors say, oh, I don't want to get It's still involved. unsold today. You haven't sold it yet. No, no. So we're distributing it ourselves. And we're doing it right. through VOD, and we're doing it in uh, cooperation with art house theaters. So, you, so, we, so where would people go to see the film? How would they see the film? You now? go to coup53.com and say, what country are you in? You know, United States, UK, Ireland, or Canada at the present moment. And then select a theater. And you click on that theater. It's uh, 12 bucks for, is the ticket. We split 50-50, and that's how, uh, that's how it works. But without COVID, it wouldn't have gotten the momentum that it got because of all the closing of the theaters. And thank God, you know, thank God. Yeah, you benefited from that. Yeah, in a weird way, we benefited from it. How would you say the, the, the methodology by which you choose which films you're going to do, how has that changed over the years? It's three things, and it's always remained the same. It's the script. I, I like a script that I can connect with, but that moves me out of my comfort zone because I don't want mm -hmm. to just keep doing the same thing over and over again. Are there the resources to pull this off? And who am I going to be working with? You know, as an editor, you are in a room with the director for the better part of a year, ultimately. So it's an intense thing and you have to get along. So those are the three categories. If all three of those are in place, then okay. It's rare that you get all three cleanly. You, you usually have to make an educated guess. I've got two out of three. Okay, I'll make a bet. The film Tomorrowland, I was working with Brad Bird, and they obviously had the resources because it was a $180 million film or something with Disney, but I never got to read the script before we started shooting. He was working on the script. And finally, I was on location in Vancouver two weeks before shooting, and finally the script arrived. So you can never tell exactly how things are going to work out. Is it safe to say that to the extent that any one of the characters you've mixed, that you are that character, is the little boy who's cutting the tape together, is Hackman in the conversation, is that you? Yeah, I think that probably <laughs> would, that, you know, that's ultimately why Francis asked me to edit the film. He said, it's a film about a sound man, and you're a sound man, and you've edited films. So, you know, that was my first editing job on a feature, a great was editing that film, because of that feeling of identity. Listen, I'm a great admirer of yours. You, you've made a lot of great movies. You've made a lot of great movies. I mean, you've been a part of movie history. You know, it's thank really you. exciting. And thank you so much for doing this with us. And good luck with the film. My pleasure. Thank you. Oscar-winning sound and film editor, Walter Murch. My thanks to him and to screenwriter-director, David Kep. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing. We're produced by Kathleen Russo. Kerry Donahue, and Zach McNeese. Our engineer is Frank Imperial. Thanks for listening.
Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 